Glad to be with you this morning and have the opportunity to look into the Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, our text is going to be verses 9 through 17. 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 9, says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as though or yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The lesson of the text is you must be careful how you build. The skyscraper at 432 Park Avenue in New York City is one of the most expensive residential buildings on earth. It, it, it sold out to the tune of about $3 billion. It has 96 floors, a beautiful view of Central Park. There is a free breakfast for all residents made every morning by a Michelin-rated chef. It is also the subject of a lawsuit by its residents who list over 1,500 construction flaws just in the common areas, not in the actual apartments themselves. Poor construction in the skyscraper has led to flooding Stuck elevators, electrical arcing, and building-wide noisy vibrations on windy days. You have to be careful how you build. The Tacoma Narrows Bridge in Washington State was planned in the 1940s as the world's third largest suspension bridge. It also became perhaps the world's shortest-lived extension bridge. It collapsed just Four months after it opened, faced with cost overruns in the construction, engineers approved the use of less expensive girders to keep the bridge deck in place. Even before the construction was complete, construction workers were nicknaming it Galloping Gertie because they noted on windy days that it would, quote, bounce like a bucking bronco. You can see videos of its collapse on YouTube. It is amazing to watch this concrete structure waving like ocean waters and then crumbling and collapsing. 
you have to be careful how you build. In the text this morning, the Apostle Paul is warning the church at Corinth, every church by extension, that we have to be careful how we build. You can see that Paul tells them at the end of verse 9, you are God's building. And at the end of verse 10, let each one take heed how he builds on it. This is an excellent example of the Apostle Paul using an everyday illustration in order to teach an important truth. In this illustration, the church is a building. But of course, it is only an illustration. We know the church is not a building. The the building we're in, I'm thankful to the Lord for it, but this building is not the church. This is where the church meets. This is the way symbolic illustrations work. They should not be stretched beyond the obvious point that's trying to be made. So, for example, earlier in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians 3, the apostle uses a different illustration. He uses the illustration of a a field. In verse 6, he speaks of the work of the ministry as I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God that gave the increase. Right? Paul sowed the seed, Apollos tended and watered the seed, and the ultimate harvest was God's alone. But look at verse 9. This is where we started. Paul says, we, that is himself and Apollos, are God's fellow workers. And he says, you are God's field. You are God's building. And so, is the church a field or is the church a building? Literally, neither. For purposes of illustration, both. Very clearly in verse 9, Paul is switching gears and telling us in verse 9, now I'm, I'm done with the field illustration and we're going to switch to a building illustration. The church is a building. You are God's building. And incidentally, when he says that, you might want to make a note, all of the you pronouns in this text are plural y'all are god's building or down in verse 16 it's don't y'all know y'all are the temple of the god this text presents an object lesson our church can be spoken of as a building in the sense that each one of us are engaged in the task of building it so the end of verse 10 Let each one take heed how he builds on it. We're going to try to boil down the essential message of this text into one sentence. It might be, we must be careful to build up our church on the foundation of the Lord Jesus. Because the day will come in which we will give an account for our workmanship. We're going to go through the text in four main points this morning following Paul's building illustration we're going to note in verses 10 and 11 the foundation is finished in verses 12 and 13 the inspection is scheduled in verses 14 and 15 the builders expect rewards and verses 16 and 17 the owner is in residence Okay, so the foundation is finished. Verses 10 and 11, look at these. 
according to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul describes himself here as a wise master builder. The Greek word here is architekon, and I'm sure that sounds familiar to you. He's, he's the, the architect, although this meant more about building than designing as it does in our day. As the Apostle Paul went out on his missionary journeys, he, he declared the gospel of Jesus Christ in the city of Corinth. He was at that moment laying the foundation for the church at Corinth. That foundation is not Paul himself. The foundation is the Lord Jesus. Paul here essentially sees himself as a, a general contractor who is waving back the cement mixer to, to pour out the concrete. He has laid the foundation by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important that you see what Paul is saying here and what he's not saying here. He is noting the indisputable fact that the Lord has used him to establish the church at Corinth in the sense of he gave Paul the, the office and gift of ministry to establish this church. So it's indisputable that the Lord used him to establish the church at Corinth, but in the same process, he is denying that he gets any of the ultimate credit for the church at Corinth, right? God used him to build the church at Corinth, Paul says. But the stress is that God used him to build the church at Corinth. Paul front loads the credit by saying it is according to the grace of God which was given to me. So, so often we think of grace only in the terms of saving grace. But here it's evident that Paul is speaking about what we would call serving grace. That is, God, through an act of grace, enabled Paul to do this work. He enabled Paul to serve. Every believer is given spiritual gifts, serving grace by God. Listen to how Peter describes this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So, serving grace, or special spiritual gifts, that's what Paul means here. He's saying, I did what God enabled me to do. And it's important to know this because his argument is about to turn to be careful what you do with the serving grace that God gives you. In verse 10, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. He says, let each one, that's us, let each one take heed how, not if, but how he builds on it. We have been enabled by God. We've received spiritual gifts. We have 
serving grace. We are engaged as pastors, teachers, and church members. Every one of us, or each one, Paul says, we are engaged in building on the foundation which already exists. So much like the Apostle Paul set the foundation for the church at Corinth, there, then others came and built on that foundation. Look, someone came along and laid the foundation through Beverly Manor subdivision, proclaiming the gospel, establishing the church here. I don't know that anyone here this morning is one of those original people who were present for that, but that's, that's okay. Each one of us as members now are responsible for building on that foundation, and we have to be careful how we build. We must be careful how we build because the unchangeable foundation is already set. <clears throat> you know, if you see a building going up, the first thing that's set is the foundation. And that foundation is, is what gives size and, and shape to what follows. The, a foundation that's set the size of a football field is not required to build a doghouse, right? This is not a, a foundation that's, that's similar, it doesn't match. Uh, a concrete slab the size of a small garage is not going to hold up a, a superstructure like a skyscraper. The foundation gives form and functionality to the structure that's built on it. Paul says in verse 11, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And we think, well, of course, Paul, that goes without saying. But it doesn't. This was particularly important for the church at Corinth to hear back in chapter 1. If you know about this church, it was divided because some were saying, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. It was a fundamental denial of this very truth that Jesus Christ alone is the foundation of the church. Paul's frustrated response to them back there was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And here it's, well, I'm just a builder who set a foundation, but, but Jesus Christ is that foundation, and nobody can change that. Any pastor or teacher who comes along and tries to make the church their own little kingdom is denying that the Lord Jesus is the only foundation of the church. And even today, there are plenty of folks who try to change that. They don't think that they try to change that, but in some ways, that's exactly what they're attempting to do. You can, for example, you can find a group who wants to build a church aimed at, you know, providing passionate and powerful worship experiences, and very soon the foundation of their church is a weekly concert, but it's not Jesus Christ. You can find another group that sees Christianity as a way to just pursue social justice. And we'll make a church that's all about, our church is all about feeding the poor and denouncing racism and promoting unity. And that is a great foundation for a nonprofit charity. But it is not a foundation for a church because Jesus is the foundation of the church. Some churches 
are founded out of a desire to essentially build community. And this one sounds more sanctified. You'll hear things like, come on in here and let's do life together. Well, maybe you can find a group like that and join their social club, but that's all it is because that foundation is not something a church can be built on. Oh, that's all about those other people, right? Let's bring this home for a second. You can have groups that set out moral distinctives as the way that they want to to implement a church. You know, they they have this set of here's here's how Christians should dress and here's how they should speak and here's how they should not speak. Essentially, we've got a set of religious rules that we all agree on and so let's start a church that has all those rules that we agree on and only people who agree with us can be a part of it. Jesus Christ alone is not the foundation of such a church. Or another group would treasure their personal history. Right? Well, mom and dad went to this church. Grandma and grandpa went to this church. I was raised in this church, and so now I'm a, I'm a lifelong member, and you're not going to mess with it. Listen, family history is, is in a church is, is great, but that is not a foundation to be built on because the only foundation of your church membership should be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have to ask, is your foundation the Lord Jesus and his his death and his burial and his resurrection, not your own works, your own traditions, your own ideas, your, your own family history, your own connection to the church, your desires of specific traditions you want to uphold. Jesus alone is the foundation of the church. Did you mean it a minute ago when you sang, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, and all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus alone is the foundation of the church. And you have to be careful how you build. Second, the inspection is scheduled. Look at verses 12 and 13. Now, if anyone build on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Note the word anyone at the beginning of verse 12. You'll also find anyone in verse 14 and 15 and 17. Or Paul uses each one in verse 13, which is the same thing he uses up in verse 10. I point all of that out because some folks invariably want to come to this and say, well, Paul is still talking about himself and Apollos. All right, we see that in verse 10. I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. And so, well, sure, Paul there means Apollos is building and Apollos better be careful how he builds. Well, the reality is Paul is not shy about using Apollos' name. He has done it throughout the first few chapters. And Paul is not writing this letter to Apollos. He's writing this letter to the church members at Corinth. Back in the 
illustration of the field earlier in the chapter, Paul did use Apollos's name to say, I planted, Apollos watered. But now remember, he's transitioned in verse 9. He's moved on from the field illustration to the building illustration, and Apollos gets replaced with the words, anyone and each one, everyone. Paul's point is that all the church members, in verse 9 he says, you are the building, and in verse 10 you are engaged in building, you all must be careful how you build because there's an inspection scheduled. In verse 13, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. Not just someday, but the day. The inspection day is scheduled. This day is when all are going to be subjected to inspection. It is not a day of being judged about whether or not you are saved or lost. Lost people cannot build on the foundation of Jesus. In fact, in verse 15, Paul is going to explicitly say, I'm not talking about whether someone is saved or not. Right? This is about folks who are saved. You've experienced saving grace. You've been given serving grace. And the day is coming when your workmanship is going to be judged. This day in verse 13 is sometimes called the judgment seat of Christ. In Romans 14, 10 through 12, it describes it as a day when each one of us will give account of himself to God. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, it appear for the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's what's intended here. If you have repented of your sin and trusted the Lord Jesus, you are not going to be judged according to God's wrath. You have been saved from that judgment. You have been saved from wrath. But every believer will be judged according to their good works or their not-so-good works or their complete lack of work for his name's sake. This is the day that Paul writes of. And the New Testament is abundantly clear in many places that living our Christian lives in view of the reality of that day approaching will cause us to live faithfully. Jesus taught parables saying the master's true servants will work diligently in the expectation of his return. Hebrews encourages us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, right? To remain in faithful attendance. And it says, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. In this very letter, Paul is going to tell the Corinthians in chapter 15 to look forward to the return of the Lord Jesus and quote, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The expectation of answering to the Lord for our work in his name, it should make us want to do good work in his name. 
So Paul uses that as his illustration of church members building and says, be careful how you build. Remember, there is an inspection day scheduled. So how can you know whether or not you're building well? Here's a few questions you can ask yourself. Are you doing work that is designed to build the church? If you're doing nothing, you're not building well. Is your, work, is your work building on the foundation of the Lord Jesus or is it self-promotion because you cannot build up yourself and the church at the same time? Since Paul and Peter both argue that every believer has spiritual gifts, right? Serving grace for use in the church. Do you know what your gift is have you tried to determine your gift or are you are you actively using your gift do you build up others with your time are you building on the foundation of Christ with your resources are you actively engaged in declaring the gospel of Jesus and encouraging other disciples of Jesus do you view the Lord's church as a place where you can serve or do you view it as a place that you come to be served? Do you walk through those doors into this place with a heart of worship that says that you are a participant or do you come just to be a spectator? Not only is it important how you answer those questions, it is also important why you answer the way you do. The judgment of the Lord Jesus is not only going to fall on what we do, but also why we do it. Or said another way, Jesus is going to pass judgment on both your methods and your motives. Later on in chapter 4, verse 5, Paul describes it as the Lord coming to judge by uh, both bringing to light the hidden things of darkness and revealing the counsels of our hearts. Be careful how you build because inspection day is coming. And when it comes, verses 14 and 15, the builders expect rewards. Actually, let's back up to verse 12 because there's something I've tried to wait to deal with. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Paul says in verse 12, everyone building in the Lord's church uh, is building on the foundation of Jesus himself and they're going to be responsible for the quality of work they do and the quality of building materials they use. And he outlines a few good-sounding materials, right? Gold, silver, precious jewels, and then some not-so-good-sounding materials, wood, hay, or straw. By the way, the difference between hay and straw, hay is produced from grass grown specifically for that purpose. Straw is produced from, like, the leftover stalks of grain that were grown for another purpose. Just in case you were enough of a nerd you wanted to know. Left this for now because there is this common view, and those of you who have study Bibles probably have this noted, that Paul is listing building materials that get less and less valuable. And that's true. They do get less and less valuable. 
But just stop and think about this, in, given the context, do you think it's Paul's primary purpose to give us a list that is less and less valuable? Or is it in his intention to give us a list that is more and more flammable? Gold, silver, precious, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. It will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work what sort it is. And if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. The judgment that's coming on inspection day, Paul says, is when each one's work, the end of verse 13, will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work what sort it is. When the refining fire of God's judgment comes, and our God is a consuming fire, when that judgment comes, will your workmanship as you built on the Lord Jesus Christ, will it endure? Will it endure beyond the final day of judgment and into the glorious forever with the Lord Jesus? The question Paul is asking here is, are you spending your time doing things of eternal significance? Are you building with good quality approved materials of obedience to his commands and trust in his promises and prayers of faith that are going to endure the fire of our master's judgment or is your life an expression of poor shoddy unapproved material of human wisdom and religious traditionalism and self-satisfaction and works of the flesh all things which are going to burn away because payday is coming and again be clear this is not a question of whether or not a person is saved. That is an entirely different kind of judgment. Paul's writing to a church full of people that he's convinced are saved, but he's not convinced they are going to hear, well done, you good and faithful servant. And so he says in verse 15 that even the believer who utterly fails in this eternal building project for Christ's glory, even he says himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. The idea is there is his, his salvation is going to be like one who's barely escaped the flames. Like they escaped with nothing but their lives. Y'all, I have no doubt that we will all experience some loss when that testing comes. I know for myself, not every motive and method I have ever used are worthy of the glory of Jesus. And for sure, you can take some degree of comfort knowing that even if you don't receive any reward for your work, you'll be happy just to have squeaked by and be in glory with Jesus forever. But I'm telling you, you're not going to feel that way when this day of judgment comes. When this day of judgment comes and the refining fire of the Lord shows that your life revealed that all Jesus was worth to you was shoddy workmanship, you will not rejoice in that. Why would you prioritize temporary pleasures 
over issues of eternal significance. Paul's argument here would tell us that good workmanship is the result of how you see the Lord's church, how it is that you see the Lord Jesus himself. So finally, verse 16 and 17, note the owner is in residence. Verse 16 and 17 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. There is no no small debate over this text, whether verses 16 and 17 belong in the same imagery of the building or whether Paul is shifting to yet another illustration. I, I tend to think that it belongs together that when Paul uses the illustration of a building in verses 10 through 15, he's driving that home in verses 16 and 17 by saying essentially, you know that building is the temple of God, right? But it's evident that the building is people and the temple is people because Paul's still using those plural pronouns, right? Y'all are the temple of God. So he's describing this because the temple is the dwelling place of the glory of God. It's the place where the Lord God manifests his presence. In the Old Testament, the temple was sometimes called the, the house of God, like almost as if this is the place where he lives. Paul's reminding the folks at Corinth that that is their church. This is similar to 1 Timothy 3.15 where Paul calls the church, the the assembly, the, the house of God, the church of the living God. So follow along with this illustration for a moment. The foundation is already laid and that foundation is the Lord Jesus himself. And you, each, each of you, each of us, as church members, are building, we are constructing on that foundation. However, this is not a project where that building is sitting empty. This building is occupied. It is the temple of God because the Spirit of God, he says, dwells in you all. And I know we're tempted to think that This is talking about the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in individual believers. But remember, the you here is plural. It's the the Spirit dwells in in y'all. The church is the temple of God because the Holy Spirit of God manifests himself in the assembly. Listen, it's true that every believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So when you take a a group of believers who are indwelled by the Spirit and they assemble together, the the assembly then is indwelled by the Spirit unlike anything else. The church that we're building is not an empty structure that's waiting to get filled someday. Paul's saying the owner is already in residence. So I want you to picture it like this. Let's say that you hired a construction crew to build you a home, but you are also living in that building while they're doing the work. Every day, you are there, and you get to see, are they busy at work? Are they following your design? Are they using good materials? Or are they on a perpetual coffee break? 
Can you imagine the frustration of seeing unmotivated workers or visualize what it would be like to have a construction team where there are two or three people doing all the work you've designed and everyone else is preoccupied with their own stuff? You see when they come in late and when they leave early and when they don't show up at all, when they forget their tools or when they waste their time, when they, when they don't do work. This is the implication of, God's, uh, of being God's temple. Yes, there is an inspection day coming when the work that you've done or not done is going to be subjected to his refining judgment. But that does not mean that God is not paying attention right now. The owner is in residence. He dwells in the assembly. He manifests his glorious presence there and he demands at the end of verse 17, he demands holiness. The other implication of being the temple of God is that this truth should eradicate indifference. Paul's intention in this text is for you and me, for each one of us, to evaluate our work for the cause of Christ as we build this church on his foundation. But without a doubt, there are some of us that will say, well, yeah, but what I'm doing or what I'm not doing doesn't really matter. It does matter because Paul says in this text, you are either occupying yourself with building up or you're occupying yourself with tearing down. You are either busy with construction or with destruction. Make a note of something in your Bible, if you would. In verse 17, when Paul says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Make a note that the word defiles and the word destroys are actually the exact same word in the original language. Phthero means to destroy or corrupt, but I think when Paul uses it twice so quickly, he means the same thing. And a lot of modern translations get this right when they read, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. <clears throat> so Paul's telling us there's no room for indifference in regard to building the church because you are either occupied with construction or with destruction. <clears throat> Every work designed to bring glory to Jesus Christ alone is building. And every work or word or phone call or text that falls short of that is an act of, the end of verse 17, unholiness or destruction. And the very God who will judge this on inspection day is in fact present today and will not overlook and ignore such shoddy work. As a church, we are all building. We are the building, Paul says in verse 9, and we are also required to be doing building, Paul says in verse 10. We are called on to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and we have been equipped with serving grace by gifts of the Spirit designed to edify literally to build up the assembly and we all face the coming day when our workmanship is going to be evaluated. So all of us must be careful how we build. 